Thanks, Paul, for your encouragement to us this morning and for your faithful ministry at Cal State Long Beach. Uh, this weekend we met with all the leaders and just praying and planning and yeah, I just t- talked much about you and the campus there and praying for Long Beach, just praying that God would work on all our campuses, that he would, we see just how college ministry in many ways is a lifeblood, you know, of the church, just that, uh, Young people getting saved, young people coming to Christ, uh, coming into the church, and they can reach out and preach the gospel in ways that we can't. I used to think that I fit right in at CBF. Now I go down there and people look at me, this, you know, old bald guy, and wondering like, what am I doing down here? And so, college ministry is a great blessing. So we'll just continue to pray. Um, yeah, we got back this uh, yesterday. I think it was a total. We were gone for a total of. Some of us, 27 hours, 48 hours, um, our annual leadership retreat, and just spending time evaluating the church, evaluating ourselves, uh, praying and planning. And Bob kept us up Friday night till 2 a.m., 2:30 a.m. And <laughs> all right, I'm not bitter. But <laughs> it was a good time. <laughs> it was a good time. <laughs> so uh, I'm actually uh, sleepwalking, talking in my sleep right now. And peace the word this morning. Well, with that, let's go to our text. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. This is the words of our Lord. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we continue part two this morning of our study on prayer. particular focus is uh, the disciples' prayer. In the context, I didn't say this last week, but the context of this Teaching on prayer, Christ's instruction, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is the greatest sermon of all time. It's the greatest recorded sermon of all time. It's the most powerful sermon of all time. It's Christ himself preaching to the multitudes. And God in his sovereignty has that recorded in the scriptures for us. So that Christ's preaching can be preached to us anytime. And it's, at, it's the final words of Christ's Sermon on the Mount that make his teaching on prayer so powerful, so impactful. Christ's final words in his Sermon on the Mount give his, his instruction on prayer just blunt force to us. So Christ's conclusion in his sermon is this, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Well, department store in Seoul, South Korea, Sam Pung, if I say that right, department store, was one of the ritziest stores in Korea. It was five stores. It had everything under one roof, from a gourmet grocery to a high-end clothing and cosmetics boutique. Many local Koreans would, would drop by this mall after hours, after work, to, to eat and to gather up errands and, and necessities. On the evening of June 29, 1995, in less than 20 seconds, the mall collapsed with an estimated 1,500 unsuspecting shoppers and employees inside. Not just a single floor or area, but five stories of the north wing pancaked into the basement, killing 501 people and injuring 937. Some people were left, one woman was left trapped for 16 days and later pulled out alive. There was no sign of a natural disaster, no terrorist act, there was no wrecking ball. Yet one minute the department store was bustling with diners and shoppers and the next all five floors were a heap of rubble. It is considered the worst structural collapse of a building in modern history. The destruction was the direct result of the deliberate use of substandard construction materials, remarkably poor engineering, and governmental corruption. Likewise, for many, for many believers, for many of us perhaps in this room, the structure looks sound. Outside, from all appearances, the facade looks intact. The engineering looks rigid and rigorous. Our lives look like they're in order. We look like we're people of godliness. But inside, there's something far different. The instruction that we come to this morning is for the very purpose of the stability of the inner man. It is for the core foundation of the believer's life. It is for his his structural engineering. And Christ says that if you and I will listen to his instruction, if you and I will absorb and allow this word to seep into our hearts, when the rains come, when the winds blow, and when the floods rise, our house will stand firm. This text this morning, it starts with each individual believer. And then it moves out. And its parameters, it moves to the individual and it moves to his relationships, it moves to the family. And ultimately it, it, it seeks into this entire church, into this entire spiritual building, if you will. That our ability, our capacity to stand firm as a church is dependent upon our faithfulness to absorb our Lord's teaching. And so we come this morning and we must ask again, Lord... Teach me to pray. Teach us to pray. It is that prayer that brings us to our study this morning. Last week's study in verses 7 through 8, Christ taught us how to pray by showing us how not to pray. He showed us how to pray by contrasting the believer's life of prayer with the pagan's life of prayer. He showed us the the graceless legalism that haunts the unbeliever's prayer life as he prays, not because of grace, but he prays in in trying to earn grace. 
And we know that if you try to earn grace, it's not grace at all. And so our Lord tells us that when we pray, we don't pray with meaningless repetition. We don't pray in legalism. We don't, we don't perform asceticism. We don't pray for a certain amount of hours and say a certain number of words as if that is what is going to, to uh, grasp the ear of God. For them, that is the means to grasp the ear of God. Prayer is a tool to capture the ear of God that He will get you what you want. Prayer is hard work for the non-Christian. Christ taught us that the unbeliever says many words and many repetitions and many positions and in many locations, all in hopes that God will finally listen. He has to pray through his beads. He has to travel to Mecca. He has to bow down a certain number of times during the day in a certain direction, etc. Listen to what the prophet Daniel tells us about prayer. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 15 through 18, Daniel describes himself, his nation, and then he describes why it is that God listens to the prayers of sinners. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel knew how to pray. Daniel knew the the underlying foundation. Daniel knew why he was praying. He knew what it was that captured the ear of God. It was that Daniel came motivated by grace, motivated by mercy. Motivated by knowing that God was listening to him because of what Christ was going to do for him. Even before the New Testament, we find that this believer prostrating himself, not on cold hard stone, but he bows his knees on a bed of grace. Grace is the blazing uniqueness of Christian prayer. The true and living God will never be wooed by the pagan prayers. Rather, it is a living God who has wooed us to himself through Christ. And so with that foundation, with with this negative teaching, we turn now this morning to how we are to pray, to the direct practice that believers are to follow, the direct way in which believers are to pray to God. Notice in verse 9, he says, When you pray, pray then in this way. In this way. Now what we have here is both a, a method and a model, right? By method, I, I guess I, I mean, the, the, you, you pray the very words itself. You take the words by rote, verbatim, and you pray them, right? Like you did in sixth grade. Every, I think I said this last week. Every day we said the Pledge of Allegiance and we said the Lord's Prayer. And as a sixth grader, I, I think it was very heartless. No, I wasn't praying with a heart. Of course, there's a danger of just praying things by rote. You know, Anglican Church, Book of Common Prayer, just praying these written prayers. At the same time, we can pray the Lord's Prayer, word for word. We can pray through the Psalms, word for word, if our heart's engaged, if we're praying them as to the Lord. But I think more fitting and probably more practical is to take this as a model for prayer. That is, it's not praying the words verbatim themselves, 
But it's using this prayer as, a, as an outline. It's using this prayer as a pattern. It's following the pattern and praying in this manner. So, Christ says to us, pray then in this way. Pray then in this manner. In other words, this is how you ought to pray. Now, as we begin, notice the priorities of this prayer. Notice the priorities. It begins with God and it ends with man. It begins with God in His holiness and it ends with man in His sinfulness. It begins with God in His might and His power and His position. And it ends with man in His sinfulness and His weakness. And in His need for God's power. It begins with the greatest purpose of prayer, which is God's glory. And it goes down to the very minutia of, of life like daily bread. So in this full-orb concern of God for His glory and His namesake, and yet also His intimate care for our daily, hourly needs. And through all this, Christ teaches us that the focus of this prayer then is the glory of God and the needs of man. This is the kind of prayer you open your Bible to and then you get on your knees and you hover over the Word reading and praying, opening your eyes again for direction and then sinking back down again into earnest prayer before our great God. Right from the start, we get to marvel again at the amazing grace of who we approach when Christ says, pray then in this way, our Father, our Father. We just go now phrase by phrase, our Father. What must have gained the disciples' attention the most was the beginning of this prayer, calling upon God as Father. This would have been striking for them, for, for the Jew, for the Old Testament Jew. It was not that it, there was an idea of Father lacking, but it was the understanding of what Father meant. When the Jew spoke of God as Father, he did not mean Abba. He did not mean the personal, intimate relationship of a, of a relative, of your own kindred father. But they meant God, the Father, i.e. of creation. God, the one who had created all things. He was the father of creation. He was the father of time. He was the father of the world. But Christ does not mean the father of creation or this, this transcendent, distant father. William Hendrickson, one commentator, wrote this. It is immediately clear that not everyone is privileged to address God thus. And that's absolutely right. No religions call God Father the way that you and I are able to and commanded to call God Father. Mormons call God their Father because they believe that's really what God is, a former man. The Mormons' mantra is, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may be. Same thing for Islam. In Islam, there is nothing like calling God your father. There is no father. There is no Abba in Islam. No devout Muslim would dare call God their father. For this to their mind would compromise divine transcendence. Allah would have to belittle himself to be called such a personal name by such sinners. And yet what do we say? We say that's exactly right. What we see here is the humility of God. This transcendent creator of heaven and earth, 
of all power who bends his ear to sinners and he listens to us and he asks us, he invites us to call him by what is the most intimate relationship of a son to his father. For Muslims, it is preposterous for a holy God to bend his ear. But for the Christian, this is the greatest of all news. For Muslims, it is blasphemous to call God by such a personal name. How degrading, how humiliating to associate so closely with sinners. But this is the gospel. The gospel beckons us. The gospel enables us to come to God and call him Father. What Islam despises is the Christian's greatest joy. False religion labors to earn the ear of God, but this is not how we pray. Christ tells us to pray to God as his Father. He beckons us to come to him as children. He beckons us to come and cast our cares upon him. I think that earthly adoption is a living illustration of spiritual adoption. Earthly adoption one day will fade away. It will no longer exist. Heavenly adoption will always exist. It will always be. We will always be adopted children of God. We will always be mindful that we were once orphans. The horror of of orphanhood is often that they are abused and neglected and then abandoned by their parents. Being an orphan can be a horrendous experience. Parents sell their children as slaves in third world countries, abandoning them. Fathers sell their own daughters into prostitution to support their gambling. Some leave them in the open fields to die or throw them in the rivers to drown. Thousands are left without parents because of AIDS. Some are simply left on the streets to fend for themselves. Spiritually speaking, this is exactly what happened to us. Your father, my father, the devil, he abused us. He used us for what he could get from us. And he left us abandoned. He left us neglected. He left us destitute. In this state, God comes to adopt us. He took us for his own. He rescued us, washed us clean of our sins, purified us not with water, but with blood. And he has not made us slaves, but God, he's made us his children. Ephesians 1.5 declares this so clearly. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. According to the good pleasure of his will. God adopted us for his own pleasure. He adopted us out of his own goodwill. The significance of calling God our Father is that he made us his children because of his grace. And he answers our prayers because of his grace. There's part two to the prodigal prodigal son. See, after the prodigal son was welcomed back by his father, he still wrestled with how much he had wronged his father. Though his father had shown him, him grace, the son, he still felt guilt over how much wrong he had done. The father gave the son back his own his old bedroom, but the son still wanted to sleep in the barn. The father invited him to sit at the table with him and his brother and to dine with him on the choices of foods, but he still wanted to eat with the servants. Though the father told him to ask of him anything, he still asked for nothing. This is how many of us live the Christian life. Adopted by the most powerful, most omnipotent father, 
who has called us to himself solely by his own grace, solely for his own joy, solely for his own glory. And he is glorified by his children, depending and casting upon him all of their needs and all of their desires. And yet many of us still sleep in the barns. Many of us still sit with the servants. We don't come to God in all of his glory, in all of his power, and in the confidence of the cross, and ask him to meet our needs. Some of you, you still pray like you're an orphan. Many of you know that David West spent the first seven years of his life growing up in South Korea. He was orphaned at the age, at a young age, and he, he lived on the streets. Somehow as a young child, he kept himself alive by eating garbage or whatever he could to stay alive. By God's grace, he was later placed in an orphanage. And though the orphanage was far better than his life on the streets, it was still a difficult place to live. Food was still scarce, hard to get enough to eat, you had to fend for yourself. At age seven, David was adopted by parents in America. He was brought over here, he was raised. His mom told him that as a young child, she would go to his bedroom and underneath his bed, she would find old, dry, moldy and crusty food. Because he was adopted and yet he lived in constant fear that it wasn't, it wasn't forever, that it was temporal. He lived in constant anxiety that if he didn't save and hoard enough now, he wasn't going to have enough later. He saw his adoption as temporal, as a week or two weeks or three weeks. And so he would take as much food as he could from the table, put it in his pockets and hide it under his bed. And though he lived in the richest country in the world, and though he had loving, kind parents who would give him everything, he still lived like he was an orphan. And that's how many of us live the Christian life. We've been adopted by God. We've been adopted by God whose hands are full of goodness, hands are full of grace. And yet we still live like we're orphans. We take meager portions. We hide it under the bed. We go to the Lord little in prayer. We go to the Lord little for His grace. And it's no wonder that we're still, at times, spiritually clothed in rags. Spiritually clothed in weakness. Our Lord beckons us to live like we're adopted. To live like we're adopted children of the King. And let me say this, adoption, especially heavenly adoption, is not second rate. There's nothing second rate about being adopted. Ever watched, uh, you've watched The Shins with Ethan. If, if you didn't know it, you would never know that he is not their biological child. You would never know by watching them that he doesn't carry the physical blood of James Shin. When they care for Ethan, they give the same portion to him that they give to Emma. They give the same love to him that they give to Emma. They give the same grace and the same kindness and the same protection, the same clothing, the same bedding, the same heating. It's all the same. This is how our Father treats us. There is no, there's nothing second rate about being adopted by God. There's no neglect. There's no difference in portions. So therefore, we must not shame the God of omnipotent resources by asking of Him for so little. 
Almost all the horror stories that you hear about adoption are not about parents abusing their adopted child. The most of the stories I have heard is that this adopted child, he grows up in this loving and caring and kind family. He grows up having all of his needs met. He grows up as if he was the very flesh and blood of that family. And yet later on in some older age, he finds out, this is not my real father. This is not my real mother. And he responds as if he's been wronged by them. He responds as if he's been cheated by them. And he treats them with hostility. He treats them with disrespect. He treats them with rebellion. With adoption. With us as his children. We hurt God. We turn against God. If he, having adopted us and shed the blood of his own son for us, now beckons us to come and cast all of our cares upon him. And freely extends his hand, offering all to us to meet our every need. Will you not go to him more quickly? Will you not go to him more often? With more confidence? With more joy? With more delight? Knowing that your adoption is not second rate. There's a danger for us to treat God like he's a genie in the bottle. We rub the, we rub the lamp, we get, we get our three prayers, and that's it. You get your three wishes and it's over. Saints, do not cease from prayer. Do not cease from going to your Father. Do not cease from going to Him with your needs. If I cannot convince you to go to Him because of your position, let me convince you to go to Him because of His position. Look where your Father is. Our Lord tells us that our Father, He is in heaven. We call God Father because of His His eminence, because of His nearness, because of the intimate spiritual relationship we have with Him through Christ. But here we look at the transcendence of our Father. We look at His might. We look at His power. In heaven isn't speaking so much about God's location. We know that God, the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain Him. That He is not, He does not dwell in temples made with human hands. That He is omnipotent. That He is omnipresent. That the fullness of God is everywhere at all times. In heaven then speaks of His authority. It speaks of His power. Psalm 115, 2 through 3 says this, Why should the nations say, Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. That means He has all authority to do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, to whomever He wants. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being. I, I would bet that almost every son in this room, at one time or another, he boasted in his father. Right. I did. When I was in third grade, remember my, my dad, he was, he was ripped, he had muscles. He was, he was fast. He was the fastest guy. And every kid always says, my dad's stronger than your dad. My dad can beat up your dad. 
my dad will whoop on your dad, right? Some guy comes up bigger than you, tells you how he's going to do it. You say, oh, my dad, my dad's going to come down here. He's going to take care of you as if that's going to solve the problem. That doesn't solve anything. But, right. Man, but all of us, we, 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 boast, we boasted in our fathers. We boasted in his, he was so much bigger, so much stronger. He would take care of you. He could, he could beat the other guy up for you. That is likewise what our boast is. We boast in the authority and power of our Father as adopted children. We've been adopted by a Father who has all authority and all power to do whatever He wants and whatever He he needs. This is why Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, He tells us to boast. He tells us to boast that we know God. He tells us to boast that we have a relationship with the God who sits in the heavens and can do whatever He wants. All of us, all of us boast in somebody we know. The next best thing to being able to play sports like Joe Pio is having Joe Pio on your team, right? You, you could boast. I could taunt Gary a little more, can taunt James a little more, because I got, you know, Joe Pio running and gunning. We boast and we can boast in who we know. Right, you go to the you're I don't know you're at the mall or something and you some some you hear some people over talking like oh man we went to we went to frostbites it was the best stuff and you're like I know Eugene personally yeah I can get free frostbites right or you're at the bookstore the bookstore and you you know you're at some Christian gathering you hear some guy you know some people talking about man I heard this sermon heard this sermon by some guy James Shin preaching this word it was so powerful I'm like he's my pastor man Gee. we we boast. We boast as believers in who we know. We boast as believers that we know God, that we have the living God. But saints, sometimes our boast is an empty boast. What good is it to boast that you know Eugene and yet never go to frostbites? What good is it to boast Joe Pio's on on our team but to keep dropping the ball? We boast in God and we go to God. We boast in our adoption We boast in our spiritual relationship with Him. We boast that He has everything at His fingertips and can do anything for us, for our good and for His glory. And yet if we do not cast ourselves upon Him, it's pointless boast. It is an empty boast. God commands us to boast in Him and to receive of Him. That is the boast. Look at what my God has done for me. Look at what my God has done for me. This is what my God can do for you. But if you do not go to Him, you cannot boast of Him. Our God has saved us that we might boast in Him. Our God has adopted us, first and foremost, for His own glory. That we might magnify Him. That we might proclaim His name to the nations and to our neighbors. And to say, this is my God. This is what my God can do. Can your God forgive your sins? Can your God wipe away the stains of your soul? Can your God provide for you what you need? Can your God grow you in godliness? Can your God help you grow in hatred of sin? Only the believer can boast. Only the believer can boast that his God can do those things. This is divine entitlement. To boast in knowing the power of God. Saints, the applications are endless. The the answer to every fear... Every trial or struggle is found here in our text. Be anxious for nothing. Why? Because life is easy? Is the Christian mantra, don't worry, be happy? No. 
It's go to your Father who is in heaven. He knows what you need even before you ask. Put sin to death and stop sinning. How? In your own might? No. In the strength in which God supplies. Every, every need and every answer is found in this text. Learning to go to our God. Why is it feasible to think that our prayers will be answered? Because our God sits in the heavens. Because our Father is in heaven. One word to those of you who have sheep that are under your care. The greatest way you will ever be able to shepherd and care for your sheep is to pray for them. This goes for pastors, for flock shepherds, CBF leaders. This goes for husbands, for fathers, for mothers. Your greatest ability to shepherd those under your care is to pray for their souls is to cast their needs before your Father. We've heard that when we don't preach the Word, or, or we've heard from Lou Priolo, that if you, if you mishandle the Word, if you don't interpret the Word rightly, if you misinterpret the Word and you teach people wrongly, you handcuff the Holy Spirit. Because it's, the word of, it's through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit, He works upon the hearts and minds of believers. It is the same with prayer. If we do not pray, as believers, we handcuff the Father. God has ordained that prayer is the means for Him to shepherd and care for us and to provide for us. Prayer is the conduit. He could have done it any other way. And at times, He goes above and beyond us praying. He knows our needs. He cares for us. But for us, we shepherd our own souls by going to the shepherd. By going to Him and asking our Father to meet our needs. We have learned earlier that the great irony of false religion is that the power of prayer is based on them. But Christ tells us that the power of prayer is in God. We know also that for unbelievers, the focus of prayer is on them. But Christ teaches us that God himself is the purpose of prayer. This leads us now into how we petition before our God. I want you to note now from here on out, every aspect of this is a petition. From the very beginning of coming to our God, we're petitioning. Now I go back to reminding you that this is a method. We have many methods in prayers, right? The the Acts model, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And we use that as this method of, you know, before I ask God anything, I've got to spend time praising Him. Right heart, good heart, and that's fine. But here we see our Lord teaches us right off the bat, We begin petitioning, we begin asking, we begin begging, and we begin pleading. And yet it is the priority that is of importance. Notice now the very first petition that our Lord delivers us. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would hallow your name. The word translated hallowed is the common word hagiadzo. It's the exact same word in John 17, 17, where Christ prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's the same word in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, But you were washed, but you were sanctified. It simply means to, to set apart. And here, as Christ uses it, 
it means to set on display. You could say, our Father in heaven, honor your name. Glorify your name. Exalt your name. Make your name famous. We learn again, as we have learned many times, that our salvation is for His exaltation. We pray God, we come to God, and the priority of our prayer is, God, I want you to be exalted. God, I want you to be glorified. God, I want you to be famous. Father, honor your name through my life. Be exalted in what I'm doing. Father, as we have learned, it implies adoption and it implies sanctification. But to to ask God to honor His name in our lives and in the world, it implies sanctification. It implies that we need God's strength and we need God's power to live a life of sanctification. We cannot honor God's name through our own might and through our own power. Just as we did not get saved in our own strength and our own might, we cannot honor and glorify God's name in our own strength and our own might. This is a call, this is a petition for God's strength to be granted to us that His glory might be magnified in our lives. And the principle that we draw here is that our hunger for God to be glorified is manifest in our pursuit of prayer. A man's love for God's glory cannot be greater than a man's love for prayer. Do you see that? A man's love for God's glory cannot be greater than a man's faithfulness in prayer. If the means to glorify God's name is in the strength in which God supplies, and if the means to receive the strength in which God supplies to glorify God's name is prayer, there is, there is synonymity. There is equality. The means to glorify God's name. The means in which Paul tells us, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all for the glory of God. It is not simply the memorization and it is not simply the desire to do those things. But it's humble dependence upon the Father, asking Him for the strength to do those things. Prayer is the means to that end. Prayer is the means to the end of God being hallowed and set apart and sanctified in our lives. This is the petition of a man or woman who has found the greatest fascination of all with the glory of God. And it is in that prayer and that pursuit that we move more specifically where that prayer is, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are sharp contrasts between this kingdom of this world and God's kingdom. We see that when Christ teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, implying that it's, it's, it's not here yet. It's not here in its fullness. It's not here in all its power. And we need but look around. Be reminded of our own testimony. Be reminded of our own family members. Be reminded of our own neighbors. Be reminded of what we see all around us on the news, that God's kingdom is not here. There is no millennial kingdom here yet. There is no reign of peace. The Prince of Peace is not reigning in his full rule and his full authority. We lived and the world lives to establish its own kingdom. We were at war with God. We were fighting him to establish our own dominion. 
Each of us, and many are, constructing their own Tower of Babel. Each of us was fortifying his own domain in order to hallow his own name. The default of every man, woman, and child is to honor their own name and to make much of themselves. This cry then is that we would cease from seeking to honor ourselves and instead pursue the glory of God. This phrase is all inclusive. It is a cry for God to help you put pride to death and to give you a passion for his honor. The answer to this prayer is a life that wants God to be the forefront of all. That is why our Lord teaches us to cry out, not my will, but your will be done. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We pray that because it's not being done. We pray that because every day we fail to do God's will. Every day we fail to honor and hallow God's name in our lives. Therefore, we must pray daily and hourly for God to hallow, to sanctify, to glorify His name. Praying for God's kingdom to come means we're crying out for his, his dominion to be established on the earth. This is, the, this is what theologians call this, this already not yet aspect. Where spiritually, Christ is he's in control. I mean, you know, physically he's in control, but Christ is not here presently. He's, we're waiting for him to return. We're waiting for him to establish. We're waiting for the millennial kingdom where he will trounce all of his enemies, physically crushing them, putting them to death, physically reigning in Jerusalem. We will see him physically. And yet what we're asking at this point is spiritually that his kingdom would come, that he would work in the hearts of unbelievers. We pray for the furtherance of the gospel through missions. We pray for open doors like, like Paul in, in Colossians 4.2, praying for God to open up doors for the gospel. And yet at the same time, we are asking even for more than just people to be saved. We are asking for Christ to return. We are asking, Lord. For us, maybe, you know, our plight is so much different than what the rest of the world faces in Burma. What the rest of the world faces, what, what, what believers in, in Iraq face, or believers in the Middle East face. The pressure and the persecution, the suffering, and the poverty that those men and women face, it brings them to cry out, Lord, return. Return for us. Establish your kingdom. Let us likewise pray. Grow in praying for God to be hallowed. Growing for God to open up doors for the gospel. Growing, praying that God would hallow his name in our own lives. Whether in little momentary things of the day or in great attempts to glorify God. Let us pray. And it is with that great, greatest of all reasons for prayer, having prayed for God's glory, that, that we now turn the focus upon us and our weakness and our need. Give us this day our daily bread. I'll just go briefly through these. The prayer simply is, uh, let me say this. Unbelievers do not pray for their daily bread. Every day, Majority of the world has food to eat, has a place to sleep, has clothes on their back. God provides for them. And what that is, is we call that common grace. Christ says, God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. All of us has food, all of us have water. But this is, a, this is an acknowledgement here for us. That the food on our table did not come through our 48 hours. 
through our 40-hour work week or whatever. It did not come through our hard labor. It did not come through our own sweat and through our own blood. It came from the hand of God. It is, a, it is, a, it is an acknowledgement, and yet it is also telling us to focus on the grace that is in common grace. We talk so much about common grace this, you know, common grace, but we forget that it's grace. We talk about the rain that, that, came, that comes and the food that's there and common grace to all men, and yet we fail to remember that, you know, just because it's common doesn't mean that it's, it's little. It's a great thing. We must grow. We must grow as people who have everything at our fingertips to acknowledge and focus on the grace in the common grace. On the, on the weightiness of that, that God meets our needs, that He cares for us. So I, I encourage you, pray for sustenance. Be thankful for the bread that is on your table. Ask, and you will receive, but you have a thankful heart. That's what Paul tells us. Pray at all times, and he says, be thankful. Even, even after you petition, be thankful, knowing that God is going to answer, knowing that God is going to supply. At the same time, there are time, we, we know that we have needs that are not met. There are things that we do need, and it seems like God is not answering, or at least He's not answering the way that we would like to. So the question that we might pose is, why do we go without? Why does God sometimes leave us in need? Why does He do this? There are times where Sophia wakes up at 11, 12, 1 in the morning, screaming her head off. And we lay in bed, and our, our wrestle is, do we go help her? Or do we roll back over, you know, put the pillow over the ears and go back to sleep? Because, you know, we learn, you, and you learn as parents, the kinds of cries. There are some cries that are, this is like life or death, or it sounds like life or death, but she dropped her pacifier. You know, or she woke up and you know she just wants to throw a fit. Our Father, He He understands what kind of pleas we have. As we remember, our Father, He knows what we need even before we ask. That means that we come to Him all the time with all sorts of prayers, all sorts of petitions. But God, in His sovereignty and His His perfect authority and power, He knows which one is really the kind of need that needs to be met. Now, sometimes that might mean that He will let you starve to death. Because your greatest need is not to, to stay in this world, but it's to be with God. There are times when you will pray, take away my cancer. But God will not answer that request. Because your greatest need is not to get up and walk, but it's to rise and to be with the Father in heaven. So understand that you're petitioning before God because you need, because you're weak. But God, He knows what you need. He knows what is best for you. And so we rest that He is answering And he is answering in his authority. He is answering in his grace. And he's answering for your good. And then he teaches us, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We understand the the priority even in Matthew 18. That if you who have been forgiven by God will not forgive your brother, God will not forgive you. That slave who had that massive debt couldn't pay it off, master forgives him, and he goes to his other fellow slave who owes him pennies. You know, uh, you know, it's not it's it's significant, but and the man says, I will not forgive you, has him beaten, has him thrown in jail till he pays it back. And that master finds out cannot forgive that man, cannot forgive that servant. Saints, we gotta remember that positionally we're justified. 
but practically we need sanctification. First John 1 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We must, we must go to the closet. We must evaluate our lives. We must confess sin. We must evaluate, how have I lived my life today? Have I depended upon the Lord? Have I been callous to my wife, my children? Have I been a man of prayer? Have I been prideful? Evaluate your life. Confess your sins and get right with the Father. Get right with God. And finally, our Lord teaches us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Question. If James 1.13 tells us God does not tempt anyone, how come we're to ask God not to tempt us? Answer, first of all, don't read James into Matthew. Don't read James into Matthew. James means that God does not tempt anyone in order to bring their downfall. God does not tempt anyone in order to destroy them. But Christ here, teaching us not lead us not into temptation, is asking God to lead us not into trials or to deliver us from our trials. Lead us out of these trials. Lead us out of these difficulties. Our Lord, He will lead us into trials. He will lead us into difficulties. Back even in a chapter or two chapters in Matthew chapter four, verse one, it says, "And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil." So the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, he leads his own son into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why? Was God's heart that his son would fall, his son would stumble, his son would be destroyed? No. His heart was that his son would learn to trust and learn to depend. Which is why Christ said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And yet also, so that Christ's power would be proclaimed and Christ's power would be magnified. Likewise with the cross. God led Christ to the greatest trial of the cross to crush him for a moment that he might be exalted forever. So we're taught to pray like Christ, Father, if it be your will, lead me not into temptation. Deliver this cross from me if you can, but if it's not your will, if it's not your will, let your will be done. And that last phrase Uh, deliver us from evil. It might more rightly be translated, deliver us from the evil one. Speaking of the devil. Just like God allowed Satan to buffet Job, God will allow Satan at times to attack us. We're taught to pray that God would deliver us from the evil one. If God allows us to be attacked, he will ultimately deliver. What we must note here is the power, though, of the evil one. Satanic power is real. The devil's influence is real. His scheming, his working is real. And so we must take this seriously. Many of us loathe the influence of the world. Many of us speak of the evils that our children face. But we live and talk as if Christian schools or home schools or Sunday schools, the answer to protecting our children from the influence of the world. That is not ultimately what will do it. We must acknowledge that the devil, he works, that the darkness is real. 
And we must go to the Lord and pray, Lord, prevail upon the darkness. Prevail upon the darkness in my heart. Prevail upon the darkness in my children's heart. Knowing that I, I cannot protect my children. I cannot rescue them, ultimately, from this. Lord, I, I pray you would do it all. When I lived in Czech Republic, there was a story uh, of an elder at the, at the church there, the church that this message would be at. This man named Yenda, six foot three, 200, you know, probably, I'm guessing 240 pounds. And this guy was big, huge man. Nice guy, but tough man. Well, he had a son uh, named Honza, kind of a, a gangly young guy, you know, big, you know, thick glasses, you know, this kind of the nerdy type, got picked on at school. And he was coming home from school one day, and this other kid came and, and, and mugged him. Asked for his money, took all his money from him, beat him up. So, you know, Honza comes back home. His father sees him, you know, clothes torn, beat up. What happened, son? Tells him the story. Dad leaves. He leaves, and he gets in his car. And, I, you know, this is the second story, but he speeds up the street, and he finds this kid. In the middle of the street, he grabs hold of the kid, takes off his belt, and spanks this kid in, in broad daylight. This kid doesn't even know this kid. Dad goes home. Hour later, the police come knock on the door. They're like, we heard, you know, we're here. We need to, you know, take, you know, what, what's going on? What did you do? And he tells them, this, this kid, come out, beat my kid up, took his money. So I went and I spanked this kid. And the cop said, all right, good job. That's it. This is, uh, this is how we, we must pray this way. You know, Honza, he couldn't take care of himself. He, he couldn't fight his own battle. I understand we have, we have big, strong, grown men in here. But there are battles that we're fighting that you cannot fight. There are battles that are raging that you cannot win. As fathers, as mothers, whatever you are, we must go to God. We must go to the one who can fight the battle for us. We must go to the one who can deliver us. We must go to the one...
more because you love the Lord. That we would pray more out of proof you love your honor. That we would pray more for mission. For sanctification. That we would pray more for the growth and holiness in the direction of our church. So that when all is said and done, we can say, we did all this for your glory. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. And Lord, teach us to depend upon you for even the minutia. That Lord, though most of us, we have the whole month set. That we have retirement accounts and everything. And it seems illogical to pray for daily bread. Let us be mindful that it is not ours. That at any moment it might disappear. Disappear, Lord, teach us to be humble and dependent. Teach us to be mindful that the war that we are fighting cannot be won in ourselves, but must be won in dependence upon you. And so often it is only you fighting for us. Lord, thank you again for your goodness. In your name we pray. Amen.